0: Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
1: The economy, public health, and our children's education, all those concerns might seem like competing interests right now, but do they have to be? I'm Melissa Davlin, Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, I sit down with Dr. David Pate, retired CEO of St. Luke's Health Systems and member of Governor Brad Little's Coronavirus Working Group for an extended interview on policy discussions and misinformation surrounding COVID-19 in Idaho. But first, after the governor's March emergency declaration in response to the COVID-19 outbreak, much of the public policy decision-making has shifted to the state's seven public health districts. Those districts operate independently of each other and the state, and have all handled things like mask mandates and business closures quite differently. Some, like Southwest Public Health District and South Central Public Health, have merely recommended masks, despite counties under their jurisdiction with extremely high cumulative and current case rates. Others, like the Panhandle Health District and Central District Health, have taken a county-by-county approach to mask mandates, depending on factors like case counts, positivity rates, and hospital capacity. Those boards are made up of mostly local elected officials from counties covered by the public health districts. And some of those officials have made headlines recently, particularly in southwestern and north Idaho, for their skepticism of COVID-19 severity and for spreading misinformation about things like whether or not children can spread the, the virus to adults, which, to be clear, they can, or on how effective masks are. Meanwhile, East Idaho Public Health District has had a more measured approach. Kyle Fannenstiel covers rural health care in eastern Idaho for the Idaho Falls Post Register in a position made possible by Report for America. He joined me Friday morning to discuss the coronavirus outbreak in rural eastern Idaho and East Idaho Public Health District's efforts to control the spread. Thanks so much for joining us today, Kyle. Can you give us an update on the virus activity in Eastern Idaho?
2: Yeah. So um, uh, since late June, it's uh, it's increased quite a bit. Um, it's been a almost a tenfold increase uh, as of last night. Uh, it was about two hundred cases in late June, and uh, as of last night, we're we're, we're barely below 200 or 2000. Um, And every weekend there tends to be a a really huge spike here which um, health district officials have said is because of um, when people tend to get tested at the beginning of the week. Um, Right now, they've said earlier this week that we're at a four day test turnaround time. That's really increased from the 10 day test turnaround time in July. Uh, The the data was really backlogged. Um, Hospital capacity tends to be really good now. Um, they, they say that their ICUs are, are somewhat stressed right now because of uh, trauma and burns during a busier-than-average trauma season, but they're experiencing relatively few COVID patients. Um, Eastern Idaho Region, Regional Medical Center, which has the bulk of facilities in the area, um, they say they have about five ICU patients as of last night, and they had between 18 to 22 COVID patients in the last week, but routinely last week they said their ICU was um, was filled up to capacity. Um, uh, but they obviously, all the hospitals here have surge plans.
1: And when when you talk about how this is trauma season, that's not unique to Eastern Idaho Hospital. This is something that hospitals regularly see during the summer with car accidents and recreational accidents, that sort of thing, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, and our health district is is really trying to hone in on. Um, the, the, regional plan that they've developed to respond to the pandemic in all of the eight Eastern Idaho counties, um, that's focused on preserving hospital capacity in general. So they're not viewing this just in a lens of just COVID It's COVID plus, um, all emergent care, um, all elective care and all healthcare needs that are regular throughout the year and being able to maintain capacity to treat people for the regular needs.
1: Can you talk to me about how the hospitals coordinate with each other on capacity?
2: Yeah, so um I, I I believe they have regular constant communication on this. Um, uh- um, a lot of the, a lot of the rural hospitals in the area. There's are some counties that don't even have a hospital. But a lot of the rural hospitals in the area communicate with one another on, um, on their capacity. Um, a, a lot of the Idaho Falls handles the brunt of trauma cases. There are only three hospitals here that have um, ICUs. That's Madison Memorial Hospital, uh, Ermac and Idaho Falls Community Hospital. So they're in constant communication, and if they have to divert patients, they're sending it locally. And um, in the case that hospitals here get overwhelmed, they will they will. have uh, diversion plans to to elsewhere in the region.
1: As you mentioned, East Idaho Public Health District covers eight counties, and a lot of the focus has been on Bonneville lately, obviously, because it's been a hot spot by case number. But what are you seeing in the rural counties?
2: Rural counties cases are are really picking up lately. Um, uh, I think as of uh, about two or three weeks ago, Clark County, Idaho's smallest county, didn't have a case but since it reported its first case, it's now um, really had quite a few cases pop up. Um, now, obviously, it's uh, active case count, which uh, active case rate, which uh, our health district uses to monitor the virus's prevalence in a given county. That's a little bit noisy as, as data. I, it, was, it was absurdly high yesterday, um, which kind of led to them mandating masks there, but it's less than a thousand residents there, so you have to take it with a grain of salt, but the virus has really taken off even in some of the rural counties. Butte County in Southeastern Idaho just got its first case a couple days ago, so it's it's really, it's leaving pretty much no place on touch now with all 44 counties in Idaho having a confirmed case.
1: You know, I'm interested in East Idaho Public Health District's board um, and how they got to where they are now with mandating masks in six of their eight counties. They have a pretty methodical way of looking at the the case numbers and the hospital capacity to make those determinations. Can you walk us through how they make these decisions?
2: Yeah. So. Uh... A little over a month ago, they developed a regional pandemic response plan that outlined four tiers for coronavirus risk levels. Uh, It's minimal, moderate, high, and critical. And all of this was to preserve hospital capacity. So they rely on uh, two key metrics to get to each level. Um, they rely on the active case rate uh, relative to the population of a given county, and they also do the the active case rate for the the, the region broadly. But uh, so far, all of the mandates and all of the actions have been an addition, uh, been on a county level. Um, and uh, now we have six of eight counties are considered at the moderate risk level. Um, it, it, it depends on the county's population, what rate they uh, what rate they use to push them up to that level. But now, um, just last night, we saw we saw Lemhi and Clark County do it, and earlier this week, we had Fremont, Jefferson, and Teton do it. Uh, and Bonneville's been there for three weeks now. So um, the only counties that are really left here are are Custer and, and Madison, and um, the school year's starting up uh, in BYUI in a, a few weeks. Um, so, uh, and the school year everywhere is starting up. So, I think, um, and hospital leaders are really saying that it's going to change, but uh, that the pandemic situation is probably going to gear up with uh, having in person classes here outbreaks in high-risk facilities, such as law enforcement and nursing homes, which we're seeing lately. Um, uh, the that the health district epidemiologist clarified last night that these outbreaks, in order to uh, push a county or the district now to the high-risk level, these have to stress capacity. So law enforcement officers, it, it, if there's an outbreak at a law enforcement facility, it has to really stress the, the capacity to provide services of law enforcement um, or obviously a nursing home outbreaks. So the, 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 um, these have been a to a high amount of hospitalization rates in the state and a high amount of deaths. So, um, I guess we'll see more. the The state nursing home report is going to come out uh, shortly today, and we'll see. But uh, as of last Friday, four nursing homes in in eastern Idaho uh, were reported by the state to have outbreaks. And just this week, the jail had a uh, the jail reported an outbreak. Thirty four of thirty five inmates who were tested um, tested positive, and uh, that's a story we're going to continue to follow, though.
1: All right, Kyle Fanischdeel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Since retiring as CEO of St. Luke's Health System, Dr. David Pate hasn't had much of a break. Governor Brad Little appointed him to the Coronavirus Working Group and he has also become a regular guest on Boise State Public Radio's Idaho Matters, where he answers medical questions from listeners. This week, he joins us to discuss the Coronavirus Task Force and public policy discussions surrounding COVID-19 decision making. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Pate. Can you give us some insight into how the Coronavirus Working Group is going so far?
0: Well, I think it's been going uh, very well. Uh, The uh, governor uh, appointed a small number of us uh, to this uh, work group. Uh, We've been meeting uh, anywhere, depending on what's going on, anywhere from once a week to twice a week, Uh, and of course, a number of times uh, communication behind the scenes. but uh, Director Jepson, the Director of the Department of Health and uh, Welfare for Idaho, uh, chairs that committee and has just done a great job. Uh, and uh, what I think is, is really great about this work group is it has given us the opportunity to get together uh, with uh, some experts And I I think that the governor and the director were brave enough to have uh, people like me on the uh, work group that uh, you know, they know uh, I have lots of questions uh, and uh, I think people come to expect that. They know they're not always easy questions and they know I press them on things, but I think that's a real positive sign that they welcome that. And uh, what it does is it gives us an opportunity to do a couple of things. One is uh, look at uh, what is the state of the state uh, currently. So where are we? What are we seeing? What's happening? Uh, But the best thing and, and what's the hardest thing when you're in a crisis is to look ahead. Uh, because you're so focused on uh, what's going on. And of course, we've seen a lot of consequences of the fact that the federal government has not been looking far enough ahead, and so we're not well prepared. But we have the opportunity in the work group to really look ahead, talk about, okay, what kinds of issues are we likely to deal with? I mean, even back in uh, March and April, uh, we were discussing... Uh, so, what are the things we need to think about as we come up on this fall with uh, flu season, respiratory virus season, schools open? Should schools be open? Should schools be closed? Um, uh, and, and are we gonna see, at that time, we were talking about waves, now we know there aren't waves. and And so, it just gives us a lot of opportunity to think ahead, challenge each other, see what are we not thinking about that we need to do, and uh, it's really helped us along the way because we've been able to give the governor um, some uh, highlight some things that might otherwise not come to his attention uh, and allow for very rapid action in Idaho. For example, um, I remember the day President Trump uh, first touted hydroxychloroquine on the TV. Uh, and fortunately, we were having a meeting later. And I went into the meeting and I said, we have got to do something right now w- with the Board of Pharmacy to uh, uh, prevent this because uh, physicians are going to be under incredible uh, pressure. And so uh, the governor took immediate action. And so it's, it's actually been very, very positive.
1: But there are, of course, a lot of considerations in front of the state as we look at the pandemic. And it's not just public health, right? It's right. education, it is the economy, it's so many different factors. Do you get the sense that the priorities of either the governor or the Department of Health and Welfare have changed over the course of the past five months?
0: You know, I in the coronavirus work group, uh, we have, the luxury of really focusing on the public health issues. Uh, uh, the governor has set up other groups, for example, on the economic recovery uh, and, and and other aspects. Uh, so we can really focus our attention. Uh, you know, the governor has to take all of those things into consideration, which you've just mentioned. And so he gets input from our work group. Uh, particularly about the pandemic and the public health issues, but you're right, then he has to take that information and balance it with all of these other um, public issues uh, that uh, this entails.
1: When, when we're talking about the reopening of schools and reopening the economy and public health. We often see in public discourse that those issues are presented as conflicting. But yeah. in your opinion, do they have to be?
0: Well, I, I think they, I, I don't think they have to be. I don't think they always are. And I, I think sometimes we make them more conflicting than they need to be. So, for example, uh, let's take a school opening. Uh, a very heated debate. <clears throat> well, uh, first of all, you know, what I try to do is I look at, well, where, where, what is it that we do agree on? And I think what we agree on is everybody. I haven't met somebody that says, gosh, I just hope we don't have schools open. I hope I can keep my kid at home. I hope I can uh, work from home while I'm trying to take care of my kid and they can pop in on my Zoom meetings and that kind of stuff. It, it, that That's not what we're hearing. Everybody wants their kids back in school. The What, what I think we've missed about the discussion is, let, are we going to look short-term or are we going to look long-term? And what we've seen from other countries that open their school with much lower disease spread than we have in certain parts of Idaho is, yeah, you open it, but you close it in a month. Uh, so is that really what's going to help parents that want their kids in school for us to rush in, open it up, and then let's close the schools down? Or would it be a little better to take, uh, some time on the front end, do this right, and hopefully we can keep the schools open? And and so I I think a lot of it gets caught up in the narrative.
1: When you talk about doing it right, what does that look like?
0: Well, I, I think... You know, one of the things that strikes me, uh, you know, there's there's been an attack on science and medicine and public health uh, that we've all seen play out. There also seems to be this underlying resistance to history. Uh, and and I'm not talking about ancient or medieval history. I'm talking about the history from weeks or months ago. What we can do, we have the luxury in Idaho to look at other places and see what's happening. And, uh, you know, we had this before our first case showed up. We got to see what happened in Washington State, California, uh, some other places. So we've had luxury to see what's happening somewhere else and take those lessons. We're seeing what's happening with opening schools in areas of high disease transmission, such as Georgia, uh, and such as Florida, and so forth. And when I talk about opening it right, uh, what I think is, is two things. Number one, and, and of course, this is going to be different in all different parts of Idaho, because there's some parts of Idaho I'm not really concerned about right now. They're doing pretty well. There are others that I'm very concerned about. And so the first question is, should the school open? And, and I think that's a question of what is the disease activity in the community? We know that in even in places with much lower disease transmission, uh, they've had outbreaks in schools. Now, we don't know. No, no country that I'm aware of has opened schools with the kind of disease transmission that we have, say, in Ada and and County, uh, Can, blah, Ada and Canyon counties. Um, so we don't know what happens. But if you just apply common sense you have to imagine that more disease transmission is worse than less. And so so we have that. We have the second thing is that there's been a false negative, uh, which has been unfortunately driving some of the conversation. And and the first one was kids don't get sick. I think we have definitively shown that is not correct. In fact, children of all ages get sick. It is true they get much less sick in general than adults, but they can get sick. The second argument that moved, well, kids don't transmit the virus. And and I think we now have proven that wrong definitively. So what I'm talking about is that first question, should we uh, uh, open, and that part of that question is uh, then leads to what are we going to do to protect kids and protect uh, adults? Because we have to understand there's a lot about this virus we don't know. First of all, we do know that there are some teachers that are going to be high risk. We've got to take care of them. The things that we don't know is what are the long term effects, and we're starting to see some very disturbing information coming back about long-term effects of, of uh, COVID, and this is different. A lot of people want to compare this to flu. We, we There are some bad things that can happen to you from flu, but they don't typically happen months after you've recovered uh, from the flu. That's what we're starting to see with COVID, and we don't know the scope and we don't know what the implications are going to be. So. First question, should you open? And then the second question is, can you safely open? And the can you safely open is related to do you have a very comprehensive, well-thought-out operational plan? Because what we're seeing across the country, kids are showing up to school day one infected. So what are you going to do? Who's going to get quarantined? Who, you know, what do you do uh, uh, for, do you shut down the school? Do you shut down a classroom? Do you quarantine their teacher? I mean, there's a million questions to, to answer. And, and the question is, have they gone through methodically all the different things about the school and do they have a good operational plan?
1: I wanna go back to something you said about how we have definitively seen now that kids do get sick and they can transmit it to adults. Not everybody believes the science behind that. And I'm including in that group, uh, people who sit on some public health boards around the state and not just Southwest Public Health District, although they've gotten the most media attention lately, but we've seen that among multiple board members and elected officials in other capacities what do we do as a society when we have these fundamental misunderstandings of the science behind this among people who are pretty influential in these policy decisions? Yeah,
0: well, we've got a lot of tough decisions we're gonna have to make uh, in Idaho uh, because uh, as I've said many times, this won't be our last pandemic. And where the public health structure in Idaho may very well have worked at times when we don't have a public health emergency, what we've seen is it doesn't work in a public health uh, emergency. Uh, So uh, there are several things uh, that we can look at. One is, do we need to do a lot more education in our schools about public health issues and just educate Uh, kids about uh, public health issues. Uh, Another thing is, we have to look at what is the purpose of these public health boards? Uh, Is it uh, their job to debate the science, uh, to uh, establish public health policy, or is it their uh, job to implement what is the public health science? Now you figure out how we apply it to the places we, we got to decide what we want those boards to do. Uh, I talked to one board member uh, to try to understand this better. And they said, you know, traditionally, uh, the role of the public health board has been administering the budgets, uh, which kind of made sense you had elected leaders on there. Uh, but now here we are with a public health emergency. Now there's two things we could do. One is, uh, and this board member told me, actually, the boards don't need to be the ones to decide about public health orders, masking orders, and so forth. The executive director can do that. Um, Now, we have a situation where some executive directors are concerned about if they do that and their boards don't like it, maybe their boards will fire them. So we have to address, uh, you know, can they actually do their jobs? But one question is, where's the division of responsibility? Who has the responsibility for that? And let's empower that. If it is going to be the board and we are going to look to them to apply public health, then I think we have to relook at how those uh, boards are made up. It doesn't make sense. To have put somebody in charge of the public health of a district who doesn't believe in public health measures. Uh, it's fine that they don't believe in it, but don't be making decisions for large groups of patients or uh, people if you don't uh, believe in it. We also have to deal with, you know, back in 1970. Uh, Idaho was a lot different. It may have made great sense back then to have a Southwest uh, Health District and a Central District Health. It it doesn't make sense today, based on how an infectious disease or contagious disease acts.
1: So those are, of course, long-term public policy changes that probably aren't going to happen anytime soon. When we are looking at the amount of misinformation that's being spread on social media and the number of people who are taking that over the word of doctors and scientists and epidemiologists, Uh, do you see anything that could change the trajectory of the public discourse surrounding things like masks and social distancing and the transmissibility of this disease, or are people already entrenched in their ways at this point?
0: You know, I I do think that the American public can change, and, and they've shown they've changed, even during the course of this pandemic. If you looked at Uh, uh, surveying people back in April about masks and surveying them about masks today, there's a lot of increased acceptance and trust in wearing masks today. The other thing that happens, as you well know, from social media and so forth, uh, you hear from the squeaky wheels. You hear from the people that are a little bit outrageous because that's who everybody reacts to and then that gets more uh, traction. And, uh, you know, we've seen a change in our culture to where um, when we have disagreements, we attack the person instead of uh, the the facts or, or the application of those facts. And so a lot of people who actually do are informed and have common sense, they don't jump in because who wants to be uh, attacked? So, you know, I've my business has been running hospitals and health systems um, for decades now. And what as a leader, what I found is, if I want people to change, there's a couple of very important things that I need to do. Number one, I need to communicate it. What is it I want them to do, and why do I want them to do it? Why should they do it? Uh, And second, I have to role model the behavior. Uh, you know, just to go back, I mean, I certainly do beat up on Southwest District Health a lot, and I think it's deserved, but um, there, there's an example that they think, uh, well, aren't we great? We are encouraging everybody to wear masks while they sit there not wearing masks themselves. Uh, a, a couple did. Uh, you, you have to role model these behaviors. It's just like with your kids. If you tell your kids, do this, but then you don't do it, not a good chance they're going to adopt that behavior.
1: Well, Dr. David Pate, thank you so much for your insights. We appreciate it. My pleasure. For my full interview with Dr. Pate, listen to the latest Idaho Reports podcast Web Extra. You can get our daily coronavirus updates and online extras in audio form. Search for Idaho Reports on your favorite podcast platform, including Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. And make sure you subscribe. Thanks so much for watching. For updated numbers and analysis throughout the week, make sure you're following Idaho Reports on Facebook and Twitter. We'll see you next week.